Okay, well, those are being handed out. Um, let me remind you of the structure that we've gone through so far. This is titled this sermon, Kings and Queens of Valor. Uh, the title, it comes from the fact that the chapter is focused on advice to kings. It comes from Bathsheba to Solomon. Uh, this is a text that is written to train Solomon to be a king. And so the beginning of it focuses on a king and how he should not throw away his strength. And then it talks about the kind of wife that would be fit to be a queen. And so that right there, we are all called to be prophets, priests, and kings. And you women are called to be prophetesses, priestesses, and queens. And so you are called to this. And this is how you can rule well together with your husband. We see in the beginning of the book, the first nine chapters, you'll remember, were written for a child or a youth. They help to set you up with the foundations of wisdom and instruction to be able to handle skill in the world. We have the thesis that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So if this book's about wisdom and instruction, you better listen up or else you're a fool. That's the idea. And so it's a rod to the child. Section 2, chapters 10 through the middle of 22, is the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. And it's for the young man becoming an adult. And they are, the 375, you'll remember, those 375 Proverbs match up with the number. If you take the numbering system and take the name Solomon, that adds up to 375. So you have a proverb for his total name value. Then, collection three is the 30 sayings of the wise. And it's an effort to sort of sum up for the young man capstones of doctrine to be able to say, here's what's been taught. And these 30 sayings should be able to be used to easily put those lessons together. And those should be relatable to the Ten Commandments. And those should be relatable to the two great commandments. There is this structure that's designed to make it so that more and more the details are drawn together into systematic arrangement to make it easier and easier so that you can teach them and recall them and have them be connected. There was this effort to draw out the outline on the heart of the child and the young man, the knowledge of God and of his law. Collection 4 is a very small section. It's the further sayings of the wise. And it begins to be a transition text. This little middle collection. Just a few verses. At the end of chapter 24. That helps to be the place where there's a transition into leadership. And so the rules of leadership began began to be dealt with in a greater way. And we got to that long collection 5. From 25 through 29. Which were... More Proverbs of Solomon from Hezekiah's men. A very creative title. And so we're reminded that this section is the middle management section. You have to deal with kings. You have to deal with other courtiers. You have to deal with people that are under your authority. And so it begins to go there. And we get to collection six. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacob. That collection we looked at as a collection for fathers, for leaders, for those who are mature, and yet there is this way in which there's a confession of the sense of ignorance in comparison to God at the beginning of it, followed by the prayer that we studied, and the seven numerical sayings, and then the sayings ending with a warning to not exalt yourself, the dangers of a palace coup. 
And we get into collection seven, and this is the collection for a king. This is the collection that is expressly written by a queen training a prince to be a king. Now, the sayings for the noble king in verses 2 through 9 start with an admonition to hear, an admonition to show restraint. It connects to women, connects to intoxication, and then talks about the use of mercy in helping the poor with their misery. and talks about the care to make sure to guard the poor. The next section, verses 10 through 31, is about the woman of valor, the queen of valor. And it is written out as a poem of praise for the valiant wife. It is an acrostic poem. Every verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it took a surprising amount of time for me to put that in the outline for you. But it's there. And my goal was to show you the first word in the Hebrew as well, so you could see. It's designed to have these, these words that are sort of little heads, again, of doctrine there. So you'll have the mouth of the woman, she speaks wisdom. You have the hand of the woman, she works hard. Right? You have all these things that are associated with it. So it's written out as how she governs herself. Now, the structure here, verses 10 through 12, talks about the value of the woman of valor. 13 to 27 talks about her activities, what she does with her body and the government of herself. And then, verses 28 to 31 is a conclusion about the praise and honor that she receives. So, Page 7 is the first page you have, I think. So let's look at the text here. The words, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Again, Lemuel is King Solomon. His mother is Bathsheba. And I've given to you here the verses that deal with Bathsheba's interactions with Solomon. 2 Samuel 11 to 12. 1 Kings 1 and 2. It's very interesting to read. I would encourage you to take a re- read from those, and you'll find that there's kind of significant action. You have you have David and his principal uh, interaction with Bathsheba, committing adultery, killing her husband. There's a curse of God that results in the death of their child that comes from that affair, and then there is Solomon, who is born as the second child of Bathsheba from David, and Solomon becomes king. And so at the beginning of the reign of Solomon there's a situation where his mother comes to him and asks a favor on behalf of somebody else and Solomon takes this as a cue that that person is trying to take the throne from him. And as a result Solomon executes the person for having a plot to overthrow his government. And so you have these significant interactions that have violence associated with them as the major story points that exist when you have Bathsheba as a significant character in the scripture text. Now, verse 2. The king of valor here, he is warned about pleasure, power, and money and their proper place. Those are the three great warnings. When we see the warnings for kings, they're told not to multiply gold, 
not to multiply wives, and not to multiply horses and chariots. The danger about gold is trusting in the money and the idea of making your, your domain into a tax farm. Right? The people are not your servants. They are not your slaves. Their houses are not your houses. Those who rule as magistrates should seek to lessen taxation when the resources drawn are sufficient. And so this policy of giving tax holidays, causing taxes to not be collected when there's, a, when there's excess, that's the historical actions of free persons. But the multiplication of gold, just allowing taxation, 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 raising the king's salary, making more and more of it into your own personal wealth, that makes the people into your slaves. And so there's a warning about that. There's a warning about the multiplication of power in terms of standing armies and offensive weaponry used for conquest. Horses and chariots are weapons that are used for a standing army. They require a lot of taxation because they require constant upkeep. They require horses to be maintained, trained, fed, people to care for them. There is a constant outworking of skilled people developing things for them, including blacksmiths that need to be putting on horseshoes. And so you have all this stuff going on where industry is taken captive. You have the development of a military-industrial complex, and that's warned against in the scriptures. And so the power, the abuse of power and the use of power to project out to conquer peoples. And pleasure. Wine, women, the general use of power to make it so that you can feast and be left alone. These are things that are warned against. And these are warned against for kings and they're warned against for elders in the church. So you see these categories. And so this is the great warning here. What my son, what son of my womb, what son of my vows, do not give your strength to women nor your ways to that which destroys kings. Women are used here to represent pleasure-seeking. Women are used here to represent pleasure-seeking. There are many dangers particular to women, and we've seen those throughout the book of Proverbs, but there is this danger of people in power no longer working and simply using the resource base that they have, diminishing it, allowing it to erode, allowing it to be wasted. Rather than taking resources and doing more work, they take the resources and they rent-seek. They become an idle aristocracy. They are those who have the leisure to do whatever they could do, and they use the leisure to do nothing. Right? That is the thing to be warned against. And the woman of Proverbs 31 is a woman who has all of the hallmarks of aristocracy and none of the behaviors of a leisured class that avoids work. Her behavior is shocking for an aristocratic woman. Because it seems like all she does is work. And so when we look at it, her industry is the prominent feature of what she has. And the king is warned, don't be a pleasure seeker, be an industrious king. And don't use the strength that you have to chase after women. Use the strength you have in the service of God. So first, look, a couple of grammatical things. So the what, what, what. Right? In Hebrew, it's ma. You could, you could translate that as listen or what. The, the point is, it's an attention-getting thing. What, my son? And what, son of my womb? And what, son of my vows? What, mom? Like, what? What do you want? Right? Like, like what, what? Yeah? I, I'm paying attention. You know, the, the triple what? The triple listen. First, this is to a son. An inferior, a cared-for inferior. She's, he's possessed by the mother. It's my son. My son. It's a possessive. And the idea... That therefore, 
When a mother possesses a son, a son possesses a mother. There's a mutuality here, a mutuality of obligation. The fifth commandment should come to mind. And then there's an, a, an emphasis on the origin of this sonship relationship. This is a natural son, a son of the womb, given providentially by conception and birth. And so there's a natural duty, but there's also a covenantal duty because the household is a covenant institution. And we should remember that sonship is just as real when it's by adoption, when it's legal. We are sons of God in adoption. We are not sons of God by nature. And so we should be very thankful for adoption, very thankful for the reality of sonship that is legal and not based upon merely a natural relationship. And so the sonship that we have is a sonship by covenant. We have that with God. But so this idea of the son of my vows, that should remind you of a few things. There's a legal sonship. All natural sons are legal sons. There is also the fact that either a son is given to you by God or given to you by God through your choice providentially to adopt. And so, this providential acceptance, there's an establishment of a relationship by vow, by oath, by covenant. Circumcision and baptism make a son a son of our vows. We have baptism now in the New Covenant era. But we, when we baptize our children, we are swearing to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are swearing to protect them. We are swearing to clothe them and to feed them. There are obligations by oath. The Lord's Supper is a renewal of that obligation by the parents. And when there is the joy of seeing a son come to the table, there is a mutual affirming of that covenant. The act of adoption, as I've mentioned, can be pointed to. But there's also, like the story of Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel, you have Hannah making a vow to God that if he will give her a son, she will give that son to him in service. And so you have a similar thing with Jethro's daughter. Not Jethro, sorry. The guy who everybody thinks he sacrificed his daughter by killing her, which is not what happened. It's the same thing that happened with Samuel. The idea that the, the son is given over to be a Nazarite and given over to service to God. So with Hannah, you have that same, you have that sort of thing happening. So there's a swearing there. Now there's a way in which all of us, as Christians, have already sworn our children to God. When we are Christians, we acknowledge that we are owned by God and everything we have is owned by God. And so, if there is a child born to us, that child is God's child. It's a holy seed devoted to God. And so we are all participants in that if we have children. And if we, are, we, we were children, we had mothers, we have that relationship with somebody. So this triple what? Is a calling upon the relationship. You're my son. You're the son of my womb. You're the son of my vows. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me to me. That is how this begins. And immediately after that, she says, do not give your strength to women. And then she defines that. She gives for us an interrupter defining clause. When she says, don't give your strength to women, she's also saying, 
Do not give your ways to that which destroys kings. A godly wife should be giving her strength in support to be a helpmeet to a husband. If a man gives his strength in the pursuit of women, not to guard one woman and to work beside her, but for women, that man is destroying his power. We see that begin back in Genesis when the sons of God looked upon the daughters of women and saw that they were beautiful. The first time that covenant sons abandoned the city of God and took wives out of the city of man. And in doing so, they destined their homes to be homes where all of their power was destroyed. And the effect was that all of the wealth and wisdom and skill and all of the power and reputation they built up across their lifetimes, which at the time, remember, were basically 8,000 years, all of those were given over to godless sons. They were trained up by these women that they had given their strength to. Could you imagine living for a thousand years to watch all of your labor be squandered on worthless sons? Bruce Waltke says, In the first command, the queen warns against unrestrained sexual gratification. Your strength and sovereign power are metonyms for all that contributes to making a strong dynasty. Those who destroy kings is a metonym for women, as those who do not build up the home, but instead destroy dynasties and corrupt the king's power, distract his attention from serving the people, undermine his good judgment, and squander the nation's wealth. David's obsession with Bathsheba led to fragrant violations of justice. We also know it is what led to the destruction of the union of the kingdom. The secession of the northern tribes was a direct result of that curse. So what are we called to do? Kings are called to use their power and their strength in a controlled way to pursue what's good. Knowing that delayed gratification and pleasure in its right place will yield rewards in this life and lasting rewards in a life to come. And it will bring honor to the name of God. Go to page 8. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. We again have the, this same form, the triple statement. Okay, there's a switch from one type of pleasure-seeking to another kind of pleasure-seeking. This is the escapist, drunken, feasting type of behavior. It's not for kings, it's not for kings, nor is it for princes. Right? It's not fitting for kings, not fitting for kings, and you right now, you're not king yet, but you're a prince, and it's not fitting for you in your current station. Because the habits of princes become the habits of kings. And so there is this call to not get drunk, to not, have, to not drink wine, to not have intoxicating drink. Is this an absolute prohibition on alcohol for kings and princes? It's not. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and he made excellent wine. What we have, though, is a call to not get drunk and to not have the habit of drunkenness. 
Pleasure-seeking clouds the judgment. Drunkenness is used as a representative example for pleasure-seeking in general. Drink, drugs, sex, the rush of gambling, wasteful gaming, riotous feasting, coarse jesting, and dishonorable joking can all fill the mind with a type of intoxication. And the laughter of hyenas is not fitting for kings. There is a call to be sober-minded, to be serious. We are kings, and we are called to be serious. Do not drink and forget the law. There's a danger here that instead of being filled with the knowledge of God, that there's a filling with intoxicant. We should meditate on the law of God day and night. The law should not be forgotten. It should be remembered. And it is necessary for kings to be particularly aware of the law so that they can administer justice. They need to know the process that's necessary. Right? Due process. And they need to know the proper judgments to execute. What things are crimes? What are the punishments that are owed? What evidentiary standard should I require? The perversion of justice is a type of oppression, and it brings curse. These are avoidable bad outcomes. And getting drunk as a king is like digging a pit and walking away with it uncovered. Somebody's going to fall in. It is not going to end well. It is the creation of a danger. And so drunkenness should be avoided by all men. And the more high up in authority you are, the more dangerous your intoxication becomes. So, what is drink for? What's its proper purpose? So we can evaluate that. There are some elements of worship that require drinking. Drinking is for the lifting up of the spirits of the perishing. It is for the nourishment of the strong. It is for the celebration of rejoicing. It is for thankful, moderate enjoyment, and there is a medicinal use for the ailing. I have down here a number of texts for you to look at. But one thing that I think is important for us to realize is we have this tendency to believe that if anybody feels bad about anything, we need to make sure to not give them a drink because that's going to make them an alcoholic. That's silly. The Bible very plainly says, when somebody's in a really, really bad spot, one of the best things you could do for that guy is pour him a stiff drink. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. That's a godly thing to do. Not too much. A moderate amount. It's a godly thing to do. Now, jump forward to verse, page 10. Open your mouth to the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Those who are appointed to die, literally it's the sons of passing away. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. When we look at what just came before, right, we have this calling to care for the afflicted with justice, to not pervert their justice. And we have this calling to use drink for the sake of helping as an act of mercy. Verse 6 is actually a teaching about how to use money properly. If you're wealthy as a king, 
Right? If you're a wealthy person and you have money, one of the things you need to do is use it for mercy ministry, to care for people who are in suffering. And so part of that is the hospitality of caring for people. Somebody comes to you for counsel, they are upset as all get out. There are all sorts of problems going on. And one of the things that you do is you help them and you help to succor the pain that they are dealing with. Now, this is not teaching a drink-into-oblivion philosophy. The forgetting of the poverty is not literally forgetting. The point is to help to reduce the burden by sharing some of the blessings that you have. And then, when you help somebody to relax, to get over this sort of intense pain, one of the things that you can do then is you can hear them out and hear their problems and offer them help to resolve the root cause you can counsel, train, help. You can give material blessing to assist with the situation. You can do all of those things. And then also, if they're being oppressed by somebody else, and you're a magistrate, or you're an officer in a church court, you open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. There's this idea of the magistrate is supposed to verbally condemn what's wicked and when it's a crime, punish it. And the magistrate is supposed to praise what's good and commend what is good. A part of that's the law order. Laws show you things that are bad and by implication show you things that are good. But also there is the ability to praise and to honor. Medals, cash rewards, the praising of people. The, you know, give somebody a medal of honor, also hand them a big check. Right? I'm sure they'd appreciate the check a lot more than the medal. Right? Great job. Right? When somebody stops somebody who's involved in a mass shooting, that guy should get a fat check. Like, why aren't we doing that? Right? These are the kinds of things you do. You praise what's good. You plead the cause of the poor and the needy, and you praise and honor what is good. Those are the things that magistrates do. And if they forget the law, they won't do it. There's an opening of the mouth for those who cannot advocate for themselves. Why can't they advocate for themselves? Because they don't have the resources to be heard or there's an oppressor. And so the concern for magistrates is not to redistribute wealth to make people not poor. The concern for magistrates is to take particular care that the poor are not being oppressed. To take particular care that the poor are not being oppressed. So when you have two litigants that come before you and one is a savvy rich guy or his attorney and the other one is poor and has to represent himself, you take special care to gently and kindly speak to the not savvy poor guy and help him to understand the mechanisms of the law and you're patient with him. That is the way that judges are supposed to deal with people who are in positions of neediness. And then they're supposed to deal with the savvy and with the wealthy, not as ones who need special care to be looked into, but to assume that if they're concerned about it, they'll raise the issue. And so the investigative questioning is focused upon the concern not to bias things for the poor, but to simply make sure that the poor are not being oppressed by allowing for clarity of law and clarity of process and to be concerned that the poor understand what justice is. Now, this idea 
of going and opening your mouth for the speechless and for those who are appointed to die. The ones who are most needy and who are in the most dire of straits receive prioritization. There's an urgency and an importance. Somebody who's about to die, like somebody who's about to get, you know, a capital punishment, for example, and they're issuing an appeal, or you take that first, or over the, somebody's appealing the traffic ticket that occurred in 1000 BC. So the order of prioritization is something that is being talked about here. And so this is a dominion principle that applies to all of us. The principle here is the principle of best and highest use. Okay, look at point 16 on page 10. Best and highest use. Not only what would be good, but what would be best. You have two people that are appealing to you. You only have so much time in the day. And so, which one do you listen to? You can only solve so many problems in the day. Which one do you chase down? If somebody's going to die if you don't do something, and the other one, somebody's going to lose an arm, stop the guy from dying. Losing an arm's bad. Dying's worse. There's a prioritization. That sounds... You go, wow, why not do it all? Because we are finite and we can't do everything. There are so many evils, so many problems, so many curses, so many issues all over the place that we simply have to choose what to do with our time. And the best and highest use is what you're called to do. And so the king, you don't have time to get drunk. You don't have time to give your strength to women. You know what you need to do? You need to use your strength to do justice. And even there, you will barely be able, by the skin of your teeth, to seek to maintain the administration of justice. You will not know which of your advisors are reliable and which are not. You will not know who is guilty and who is not. You will not know always what to do. And you will be going, trying to apply the wisdom of God with the limited resources. And you know what happens to Solomon when he does this for several decades? He writes, What is lacking cannot be numbered, and what is crooked cannot be made straight. He is the wealthiest king that the earth had ever known up to that point. And he feels like he can't do it all. That's what he says in Ecclesiastes. This is one of his early despairs. He writes that. You give all your strength to this, and you're still going to think, there is too much to do, and I have too little to do it. We are not called to do every particular duty at every particular moment. We are called to the best and highest use at every moment. Now, this you think about this, it applies to evangelism. Saving lives with mercy ministry and saving lives with defense. Okay, these are the types of things that, that are the urgent ones. Proverbs 24, verses 8 to 12 says, He who plots to do evil will be called a master of evil plots. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? This is sort of a background for this idea of, hey, there are people appointed to die. Don't let them die. If you're the king and you have resources, work. Do not use the position of authority. Do not use power for your own pleasure. So if you take office, you take office to serve. You become the slave of all. Go to page 11. 
there are fast vanishing opportunities that have a high weight and urgency. And two of them that I want to point all of you to, teaching children. Children are not children forever. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. There is a time of opportunity called childhood. If you have children, use that time. Be careful to train them up in the way that they should go. Saplings can be bent more easily than the fully grown oak. And so that is where the effort ought to go. There is a need to care for young children. Additionally, establishing a marriage well in its beginning. This is of such high value to God that there is this rule in Deuteronomy 24.5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. The assumption here is it's a just war. The assumption is this is a just war. The just war. So like we're talking about there's an invasion in your country and the rule that God put into place was the guy who just got married doesn't pick up a sword. He doesn't go out there. They come to his door, great, pick up the sword, save your wife, get out of there. You know, you got to do that, right? That's a necessary immediate defense. You don't get up and join the assembly of soldiers to go out and issue the counteroffensive. You are not joining the assembly of the men. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. Notice it goes from like the extreme of war, necessary just defense of a nation upon invasion, the likely scenario, to any business. So they're like, don't make this guy carry a letter for the king. Right? This is from great to small. He shall be free at home one year. And he's supposed to focus on his bet, oikos, his household, for one year. Notice this. And bring happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. So the care to avoid giving public business to men in our assembly is based upon the reality that there is weight and urgency to establishing a marriage well in its beginning. That is why we are careful as an assembly to do it. So this idea of picking matters of weight and urgency, right? Those who are on their way to die, go save them. That's what the king is told to do. Open your mouth. Speak. Do not fail to speak. Men, we often fail to speak. We are in a time that says, are you a man? Don't talk. Don't mansplain. Mansplain. We are called to talk. You are called to speak. It is your duty to make liberals angry. Your job is to speak. You have to speak the truth. You have to make judgments. You have to oppose the wicked. You have to say the unpopular truths. The effect is it shapes your mind, it shapes minds around you, and it causes the wicked to cower. It's your duty to speak. Do not fail to speak. When there's a duty, when there's injustice, when there's wickedness being done, a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring in a polluted well. Don't be that guy. Judge righteously. Don't fail to judge. Label evil. Label righteousness. Now, I have a list for you at the bottom of the page of those who are 
uh, under-resourced, and that might need to avoid disaster, that is a special call to care about. Deacons, men in general, the kings, elders should take special care for orphans, widows, disabled poor, strangers or aliens in the land, and the working poor. Sort of the order of priority there. Kings and rulers of every sphere and every level are called to watch out to see if those with little power are being abused by those with much power. It is very possible for equals to abuse their rights over equals if they are not checked by the magistrate or by the church. How much more can superiors abuse inferiors? So authorities are called especially to care about those. All right, page 12. We get into the queen of valor. We get into the the woman of valor now. Who can find a woman of valor? And so I think you've all heard this from me, but this idea of the, the ishet kail, it's isha is the root, but it's modified in the construct state. So the isha kail is this, this woman of valor. The ish kail is the man of valor, the valiant man. Okay? You see that translated as a man of valor or a mighty man sometimes or mighty man of valor. And you'll have Gabor thrown in there, which means great or powerful. And so you'll have like the, the mighty man of valor is the Ishgabor Kail. And so you have these references. Now, the woman of valor is referenced only three times in the scripture. Proverbs 12.4, Ruth 3.11, and here. And it is supposed to draw your mind to the idea of the man of valor. This is a woman who's fitting to be married to a man of valor. A man of valor is a man who gets stuff done. He's a man of business, and he's a man of war. He moves swiftly and decisively in all spheres of life. And this is a thing I like to repeat, so if you've heard it, great. Popular art likes to tell you that your character in ordinary life will not affect you in moments where bravery is called for. And so it is common to see in popular art that is nihilistic, where you have the guy who is supposed to be virtuous, and in the moment of trial, he cowards out. The guy who everybody hates, in the moment of trial, he accomplishes what needed to be done. And it's a shock and all that, and it's supposed to be a subversion of expectation. Now you just expect it, right? You watch the thing and you go, that guy is you know, clean cut, looks kind of manly, probably going to chicken out. You're not surprised when that happens. So what we're supposed to learn from the Bible is, if you want to be courageous in the moment when it matters, be courageous in the small things. Be decisive, take risks, get things done, do stuff. That habituates you to make decisions under stress. It is a type of exposure therapy and character building, habit formation. So the woman of virtue works in small things and she works regularly. The woman of valor, this is sort of a heroic poem If you put it next to, for example, the stories about the mighty men, if you go and read the texts about the mighty men, you're going to find they have these lists of of feats that they've accomplished. That's what this is about, too. There's another place in the Bible that does this with a woman, and it's when you have the introduction of Rebecca, where she's at the well, and she's pulling out uh, out uh, all this water to be able to give it to the camels. These are two examples where you have sort of this trope of the heroic poem being exemplified with women. It's when they're able to accomplish diligent work that's hard work. Those are the heroic poems that are offered about women in the Bible. Is this heroic, diligent, competent work. So we have that here in Proverbs 31. So who can find a woman of valor? 
Her worth is far above rubies. And the first word here that gets emphasized in the whole thing, it starts with Aleph, which is sort of the A of, of Hebrew. And it's a silent letter. And it has a little vowel mark under it that sounds like E. So you have Ishet. So the first word there is the woman of. So this poem about the woman of valor starts with woman is the first word. So this is the subject matter that we're talking about. And that's what we're introduced to in the first line. So this woman of valor, she's a kingly woman. She's a queen for a king. Women are queens that are to rule beside their husbands. Or they are princesses that are to rule as stewards in the house of their fathers. It's funny. We hear princess and we think somebody who doesn't do any work and can't sleep if there's a pee under the mattress. Okay? You know what a princess is? A princess is somebody that's called the public service from her youth. Our daughters are to be like polished pillars in palaces. That they are gracefully present in the place of rule. That they are ornamenting godly behavior. And they are showing strength. The Proverbs 31 woman shows this godly behavior, this diligence, this beauty and majesty of honor. That is the manifestation of that. And so this idea of someone who represents their father or represents their husband. Proverbs 12.4, the excellent wife, in other words, a wife of valor, it's the same, Ishakail, is the crown of her husband. Crowns are about ruling, they're about authority, they're symbols of authority, and they are a way of helping to exercise power. They cause other men to respect you and to be willing to let you rule over them. This is one of the requirements for elders and deacons. That they rule their wives well and that their wives be fit. There is this idea of the crown causing rule. And that's manifest throughout this poem. But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. The strength versus the weakening. Ruth 3.11 And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a woman of valor. Ruth's work as a poor woman in Boaz's fields with the other maidens present and the young men seeing and protecting made it so that she was known to be a woman of valor because she worked hard for herself and for Naomi, (coughs) who was going by Mara at that time. But then would be Naomi again. So, the woman of valor. She is more valuable than rubies. Beauties are known for, rubies are known for beauty, brilliance. They're a collection of glory and value. And the woman, as a priestess, is a beautifier, a glorifier, and a relational guard. And she is a more concentrated form of glory than rubies. Women, you are the glory of men. You are the glory of men. And when you are served well by a head of house, there is more and more concentration of that as you're washed in the word. And as that comes out, your fingertips, as you work and bear fruit, you are a manifestation of that as the glory of God is captured in you in terms of the word there. And so men, the best thing you can do to advance your own honor in life is to serve well the women that you are obligated to protect and to concentrate in them the glory of God 
by causing the Word to be manifest in them so that you rule well and cause them to be glory bearers that are displays of that concentrated glory. Verse 11, Bet. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her, so he will have no lack of gain. The word that starts with bet is beta, which is to trust. Okay, so he trusts her to seek his good. He trusts her to be a good steward. He trusts her to manage the budget efficiently. But not only to spend for consumption, but to spend for gain. That's why he trusts her, and he therefore entrusts her with resources and authority to do things. Now, wait a minute, you all, we, all, we all want additional authority? The best way to get additional authority and additional resources from the man who is over you in authority is to behave in a trustworthy way and to show that the resources and things that you manage are things where he can say, I am at ease knowing that you have this. I do not worry about it because of your competence and because I know that you are seeking the good of our house. And so that right there, that desire, husbands, seek to trust your wife and to your wife and to entrust her with resources. Wives, seek to be trustworthy. The excellent wife is trusted. And the excellent husband acknowledges the trustworthiness of an excellent wife. Husbands, I would encourage you to give your wives a zone of authority and to not micromanage it. To give a budget and to encourage them to take leftovers from the budget and to try to make money with it, to take risks. And when they fail because they're learning, to not reprove them for it, but to commend them for taking the risk and to encourage them to take more. And you continue to supply there. Not ruinous. However, the idea that you're giving money that can be afforded to be spent as a budget, as a zone of authority. Give the budget and encourage them to use the leftovers for investment, to increase resources that they manage as they generate more value. Wives, do not be carefree and absent-minded about money. Be a trustworthy and wise steward of resources. And here's the thing. If you think, as a homemaker, that you can avoid studying business, you are wrong. Home is business. Home is business. And one of the reasons that Baal has taken over the workplace is because we forgot that. The workplace is the extension of the estate. It is a part of the home. It is a part of the household. Wives, do not be carefree and absent-minded about money. Be a trustworthy and wise steward of resources. You need to study the management of people. If nothing else, you're probably going to have kids, and you've got to manage them. You might get to manage more if you study it. Study how to manage property. Whatever small amount of property you have, you've got it. And the better you are at managing it, the more of it you will probably have to manage. Be good at managing money and tracking things. Bookkeeping is uniquely Protestant. The art of accounting developed in Protestant countries in a particularly advanced way because Protestants were very concerned to figure out how to find every extra penny that they could invest. And one of the funny things is that God kind of forced the invention of accounting by Jews because he said you need to tithe. 
And so tithing forces accounting because you kind of have to start counting things and the increase. And so you have to have a P&L. You have to have a profit and loss statement, an income statement to know how much do I have to tithe. And if you're concerned about over-tithing, you know, you don't, you don't want to give more than 10%, right? So, so you think, I need to really carefully track my gains here to make sure I'm not over-giving, right? So you can imagine Scotch, German, Dutch guys being concerned about this and being very careful to precisely get how much they made and not over-guess how much they made. Accounting is very important so that we can tithe and so that we can steward well. Bookkeeping is the language of money. And it's very simple. You can learn how to bookkeep in like 20 minutes on YouTube. I strongly encourage you to learn how to account for basic transactions so you can manage money. You're not going to be like the Proverbs 31 woman if you can't do basic bookkeeping. You're not. You're not going to know how to do it. You're not going to know where your money's going. You're not going to know how to find extra resources. And here's the deal. We look at the Proverbs 31 woman as you read through it and you go like, this is absurd. Nobody could do this. Why? Are you familiar at all with the life conditions that people have had in most of human history? The amount of free time we have is absurd. The amount of free time we have is absurd. The excess resources we have is lavish. We live better than kings from two centuries ago. The entertainment, resources, tools, things that we can get instantaneously. This is not absurd. American farm women basically had the same level of activity as the Proverbs 31 woman for centuries. It is not absurd. And men, our level of activity is supposed to be like this too. This is what we are supposed to look like. There is so much to do. And I'll tell you what, if you think this sounds dreadful, good work is the thing that keeps you from dread and misery. When you fill your time, instead of having the bread of idleness in your hand, you have work in your hands, it makes so much more joy. And it causes other people to work with you to try to do things. And you see fruit and progress Husbands, we need to encourage our wives and trust them and give them resources and encourage them that they can analyze and think and do, that they can increase what is under their dominion. So this idea of thinking like a business woman, this is a part of what you're called to do, women. Now, it's an interesting thing about this phrase also, the idea of trusting in the woman. Over and over again, You'll see in the Bible, trust in Yahweh. You'll also see sins of trusting in princes and chariots and horses and trusting in Egypt or trusting in some other covenanted ally that shouldn't have been trusted in or whatever. There's all this trusting that shouldn't be happening and it's condemned. Look up the word bata. You're going to find it used over a hundred times and they're either you trusted in God, good job, or you trusted in something else, bad. Right? This is the general tendency. And you have two exceptions, trusting in something that's not God. The first one is a trusting that occurs in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, 
the men of Israel are engaged in battle. In this battle, there's a group of Israelite men that are set up for an ambush. And the men that go into battle, they know they're going into a losing position, but it says they trusted in the men that were waiting in ambush. They trusted their covenant brothers to go and do their job and to attack the flank of the enemy. And it's commended, and they win. Covenant relationship with brothers. The other time it's commended is right here. He trusts his wife, a covenant sister. He trusts her. So this idea of you don't trust randos, you don't trust people who are opposed to God, you don't trust in princes, you don't trust in money, you don't trust any of that stuff. But we are supposed to trust God, and we are supposed to trust in our covenanted brothers and our covenanted sisters. And that is commended, so there's a relationship of trust. Now, the result of this trust is an interesting parallel back to the beginning. You remember chapter 1? We have the gang, and the gang says, tell you what, guys, join the gang. You will get spoils. We'll have one purse. We'll have it in common. It's going to be amazing. We're going to take people's things. It's going to be great. That word there is spoils, plunder, stuff that's taken. That's the idea. And the promise of the gang leader is, you join us, you have one purse, and there's going to be plenty. You're not going to have a lack of spoil. And that's a lie. He's going to make you a slave, and he's not going to deliver. And when he's done using you, he's going to dump you when you're not useful. He views young men as expendable fools, useful idiots. On the other side, there is a place where you can get spoil reliably. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. So he will have no lack of gain. And that word there is plunder or spoil. It's the same word going back. So the place where you can get plunder out of the world, where you can take booty, where you can be successful in gaining by conquest in dominion, is by working with a wife to build a home. That is the promise for where there is spoil to be taken. All right, we're going to pause here. Glad we could make it almost all the way through. What about the woman? Comments, questions, objections from the voting men, those with speaking rights.